is Wednesday, the September 24th, 2008. Our message tonight is called Shame. I don't know uh, how many of you would remember this. I suspect there's at least one or two of you that would. If I could sing it, I know that you would remember it. But I grew up in Louisiana, and a man named Fats Domino was born in New Orleans in 1928 on the February month of February and 26th day of the month of February. And when my dad was coming up, uh, because this guy was a local star who had made it big, he got to play my father's high school prom at Baton Rouge High. And uh, Fats Domino sang all kind of songs, like I Found My Thrill. Uh, but the one that stuck in my mind this evening was number four on the billboards in 1955. Little little minute and 26 second song called Ain't That a Shame. And uh, there you go. That's exactly it. Whoever did that, I lost it. In fact, those words uh, say, You made me cry when you said goodbye. Ain't that a shame? My tears fell like rain. Ain't that a shame? You're the one to blame. And he goes on and says, You broke my heart when you said we'll part. And then right back into the song. And I think the reason that this simple little song caught on in the early days of rock and roll is we all know exactly what it is to feel shame. We know exactly what it is to feel that horrible feeling of unworthiness. I got a little dachshund who can display it better than anything. If I wasn't scared that he would pee on my carpet in here, I would bring him in here so you could see what it is like to be ashamed. I can look at him, change the tone of my voice, and say, Winston! And the tail goes between the legs. The back arches. His head drops and his ears drop almost over his eyes. You know, We were not made as human beings to live in shame. We were not. In fact, turn with me to Genesis 2. Another thing you could title this is, Ain't No Shame in My Game. But it was too long to fit on the title. My dad, actually, while you're turning to Genesis 2, had 45s. Not a pistol you shoot, but the little records, 45s. And when I was in junior high, we found them, you know. He kept them in pristine condition. But aside from the occasional fabulous Thunderbirds or... Some of the other guys that he liked, like Chuck Berry, most of them were Fats Domino. And when you listened to them, they were just lighthearted and sang about everyday things in life. And I could see why my dad liked them. You in Genesis 2? Okay. In Genesis 2, we are before the fall of mankind. I want you to notice something. I'm only going to read to you two verses from the second chapter of Genesis, but I want you to get this. God describes the entire creation. He talks about what he's built on each day and says, man, it's good or it is very good. He describes uh, man's needs. He says it's not good that man's alone. He makes for him a helper. In all this story of creation, there is not one line about how mankind felt. Never does it say, and the man was happy, or the man was sad, or the man was, you pick your emotion. Until we get to Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Part of perfection, part of the earth before the fall, part of 
a man that didn't need to be regenerated because he had never been degenerated is a man that had absolutely no shame. Now, when we use that phrase in English today, if we say, boy, Adam knows no shame, we almost mean they're arrogant and not humble, right? It means that there's nothing that you could do to make them feel ashamed. When we walk in God's presence, there's supposed to be no shame. Now, we know that immediately after mankind sins, they feel shame. And the first thing that they do is try to cover themselves with something. Isn't it interesting? We have this idea in church that if you sin, that keeps you from God's presence or separates. How about this one? Have you ever heard it said like this? Sin separates you from God? Who in here has not heard that? Matt, you've never heard that? <laughs> if you have heard that, you could nod your head. You could, you're only going to have to put up with me for 24 more minutes. Sin separates you from God. Really. If sin separates you from God, then why right after the sin does God come looking for him? Were you a saint when he found you or were you a sinner? I want you to understand something. There's a little bit of semantics in the words, but I want you to get this because it might change the way that you walk on a daily basis. Your sin never keeps God from you. It doesn't. I don't care who told you it. I don't care who the theologian is what kind of doctor titles in front of his name, or what denomination he's a part of. Sin does not keep God from you. It can keep you from God. And the reason is when we feel shame, we do what they did in the garden. We go hide and cover. Just like my little dachshund. He covers everything important to him and hides. And if I'm really mad, he goes and gets under a bed and peers out. Mixture of shame and fear. We were not made to dwell in that. One of the reasons I think that the devil so strongly has attacked people, and he uses things in our lives that God designed us to be. You know, a lot of our life is a chemical existence. We don't mean for it to be, but it is. You can't help that. When you see the sunrise in the morning, there's a chemical reaction that it causes in your brain. There's a release of serotonin. God did that. When your eyes see a lot of things, there are chemical reactions that occur. The devil has tried to work into the church the feeling that everything that you do is wrong so that you'd be covered with shame. I talked with a very good friend on the phone the other day and he was perplexed because he happened to notice how other people were shaped. I said, well, friend, did you want to murder your family and take that family? No. I said, did you desire to set aside what God had given you to go try to obtain that? No. He said, did you sit and meditate, meditate for hours on what it would be like if you were with that person as opposed to another? He said, no. He said, so what is it that you think that you've done? He said, well, I feel like I shouldn't have noticed how she was shaped. I said, well, then pull out your eyeballs. And also don't notice the colors that are around you. And don't notice the clouds. And don't notice all the other beautiful things in the creation. It is a lie from the enemy that covers his church in shame. God made us to notice things. God made us to think that his creation and everything in it was beautiful. When Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully, you need to understand what the word lust is. Lust means that you desire that person. You would do something to obtain it. 
When he said, if you look at a woman lustfully, it's like you've committed adultery with her in your heart. It's because that's what your heart wants to do. To notice that my wife is beautiful makes you a red-blooded human being. She is. That's just how that works. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, tell me the truth. When you walk into a room before your cognitive abilities are even working, you notice if somebody's ears are a little lower than the one on the other side of their head, if their eyes are out of whack, if a nostril's bigger than the other, we are built to do calculations at an amazing rate. We look for symmetry in people and we call it beauty. God designed us that way and there's nothing wrong with it. The same Greek philosophy that teaches us everything in the world is nasty and ugly and that we need to leave this stinking planet behind has brought into Christianity something that the devil's used. Anything in the world that you enjoy, anything that you notice, anything of beauty must be wrong. Like that movie where the whole town was in black and white. I say all of this to say that God's people are not supposed to be covered in shame. Turn with me to Psalm 119. If what you hear is me making excuses for you dwelling on unholy thoughts, then listen more carefully. That's not what I'm talking about. Shame produces in you the desire to cover and hide from God. When you feel shame, you don't want to go worship. Why? Because you're ashamed. God's not ashamed of you. He's not too holy to be in your presence. What condition were you in when He found you? But shame keeps us from God because we feel like we can't be in His presence. In Psalm 119, there's an acrostic here. We go through all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. We start in Alf, and then go to Beth, then Gimel, then Daleth, and on and on and on. But where it starts, I want you to hear. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep His statutes and seek Him with all their heart. So far, so good, right? They do nothing wrong. They walk in His ways. Huh? You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Do you hear this strange dichotomous thought? He says, man, it would be a blessing to walk in your ways and do nothing wrong. I wish I were like that. Then I would not be put to shame. When I consider all your commands, I will praise you with an upright heart. As I learn your righteous laws, I will obey your Decrees, do not utterly forsake me. An awful lot in this church teaches you the standard that you are supposed to live up to. And I push it to the point where I'm trying to be confrontational. We get right in each other's face and it creates friction for the purpose of creating some movement or change in your life. I do it on purpose. Somebody recently told me that they often get mad in Sundays, on Sundays, but that they like it. I said, good, that's my goal. I hope I make you mad sometimes, happy sometimes. If you were around a preacher that never steps on your toes, find a new preacher. I step on my own toes. The source of shame is when we don't feel like we're living up to God's ideals for our life. Do you hear that in what David said? Man, I wish I was obeying your decrees perfectly. I wish is basically what he's saying. Shame is the product of transgressing what we know is right. Listen to what he says in the next few verses. How can a young man keep his way pure? Isn't it funny? You would think that this was just a recent problem. If you counsel people in a church, 
over and over and over. It's almost as if at some point people think that we're psychic. Because if you talk to a hundred men, we're going to find the same top four or five problems. If you talk to a hundred women, we're going to find the same four or five problems. It's because we're all made of the exact same thing. This is not an excuse to shake each other's hands and make a commitment to just live less than what we're called to. But the question remains, if we all have the same struggles and the same problems, how can you keep your way pure? By living according to your word, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I seek you with all of my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. One of the things that we need to acknowledge in Christianity is what the world has called grace and mercy, but no one has understood. Grace and mercy works like this. Lord, if left up to me, I'm going to get this wrong an awful lot of the time. But I need your help. I need you to help me not stray from the good that you've told me to do and that I want to do desperately, but often don't do. Grace and mercy is when you are contemplating something that you shouldn't and you get interrupted by somebody that wants to pray with you. Grace and mercy is when you are thinking of doing something that you shouldn't and a scripture comes to mind and changes your direction. Do not let me stray from your commands. Do you hear how how can a young man keep his way pure and a shift starts to occur in this? It's not so much what can he do, which there's an element of that. We're going to find out he hides the word in his heart. But there's an element of what is God doing for you. If it's left up to us, saints, if this gospel depends upon your perfection, not aiming for it, but you're achieving perfection, how well are you going to do? How many hours would you serve Jesus before you were disqualified? Let's be thankful that it is not up to us. In the very beginning, when God makes His covenant with Abraham, and he cuts animals in half, and the tradition is that both parties who are making a covenant walk through the animals, showing they have an equal obligation to keep the terms of the commands, the terms of the covenant, God knocked Abraham out. I'm not talking about just set him on the side and said, watch. I'm not saying, said, here, you walk part of the way and I walk three quarters of the way. He knocked him completely out and passed through those pieces himself. Grace and mercy is that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You know why the world rejoices when a preacher stands up and says, this is wrong and this is sin, and it's almost with a vengeful, hateful attitude, and then that guy falls? Because we know there's something disingenuous about it. It's the grace of God that gives you power over any sin. It's His Spirit in you that makes you more than an animal. But because His Spirit is in you, because His Word dwells in you, you don't have to be subject to anything. I have hidden Your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Why didn't He say, I hid Your Word in my heart so now I will not sin against you? He said that I might not. Because the man is realizing that there is still the propensity within him to do the very thing that he knows he shouldn't do. But he figures the more of God's Word he can stuff in his heart, the less likely he is to get it wrong. Come on now, is there nobody out here that can relate to this? 
You know why I preach a message like this? Not only do I need it, personally, I need it, but I realize that one of the bigger problems in our church and in every church is that when you hear about the righteous standard, when you hear about the perfect life of Christ and you measure yourself against it, you are constantly short, short of it. And when you do that, one of the wrong conclusions to come to is a shame that says, I can't measure up. I won't measure up. And you know what people do when they get in that place? They all too often give up. And this is when you see somebody dancing and praising God and hallelujah, and then three weeks later they have given up. They just took a break on Jesus for a few months. And you say, why? Why would you do that? They're overcome with shame. So they just try to get out of the game for a while. And then hopefully enough times pass, the conscience is hard enough, they can get into God's presence without really remembering all the things they did and hope nobody noticed. This is not the life God's required of us. It's not what He wants of us. Prior to sin, there was no shame. Praise be to You, O Lord. Teach me Your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from Your mouth. I rejoice in following Your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on Your precepts and consider Your ways. I delight in Your decrees. I will not neglect Your Word. Saints, most of the time we fall because we are feeding ourselves more of the world than more of the Word. Whatever you eat the most of, you'll become the most like. What Mama told you when you were a kid was true. You eat garbage and you're like garbage. It's true. David realized that he had a huge likelihood in his life that at any given moment, even though he had a heart after God, that at any moment he could get it wrong. And many times he does, and he cries out to God. Look, turn to Psalm 25. Listen to how this man's crying out to God and tell me that this couldn't be you. From Psalm 119, I want you to understand that shame can be the product of transgression. One of the cures is that you need to put effort into learning the Word and dwelling in the Word. But the truth is, that in itself is not enough. Or any savant who memorized the Word of God would be perfect. But they're not. How many times do you know that the Word of God says, don't do something and you did it? How many times do you know that the Word said to go do something and you didn't do it? I've been there more times than I wanted to count. And there's a deep and profound sense of shame. And you know what it does? It curls your face towards the ground so that you can't look at God. Just like my little dog doesn't want to look at me. And if you had a tail, you'd tuck it between your legs, but you don't. So instead, you just start to turn your life inwards. You try to hide. It's never been any different. Or if you're really industrious like Adam and Eve, you make for yourself a nice fig leaf, a religious covering that shows the whole world, I'm okay. I'm okay, but inwardly you're ashamed. We cannot live like this. We can't operate like this. God didn't make us to. Look at Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Your soul is your mind, your will, your emotions. To you, O Lord, I lift up my mind, will, and emotions. In you I trust, O my God. 
Do not let me be put to shame. He doesn't say, I won't be put to shame. He doesn't say, I can't be put to shame. I will work myself out of shame. He asked God not to let him be covered in shame. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. But they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. How can a man make a, a, a blanket statement that says, no one whose hope is in God will ever be put to shame? How could he say that and it be true? And incidentally, he says it right after he just says, don't let me be put to shame. How could somebody do that? Is he a schizophrenic? What's the deal? He's asking God out of the depths of his heart not to let him be put to shame. And then he's encouraging himself. God didn't let anybody be put to shame whose hope is in him. What I'm trying to tell you, saints, is your job is to make every effort to walk in righteousness. Your job is to fight hand, tooth, and nail to pack the Word in you. But in the end, it's God who doesn't let you be put to shame. Let's be very clear. All of us deserve to be ashamed. Very ashamed. But our God says, if you make me your refuge, if you put your hope in my power and not your own arm, you will not be covered in shame. So what does it say to Him when we walk around covered in it? it means that we really don't trust Him. It means we really don't think we deserve Him. We can all agree with that, huh? We don't deserve God. Except He says that you are not to be covered in shame. I want to submit to you an idea today that maybe the hardest thing in all of the Word to believe is not that God raises the dead, but that He will forgive you for something that you did yesterday and you very well may do again next week. Come on now. I'm not preaching to anybody in here. How many times you got at this altar and said, Lord, I don't want and never again. I love you and I thank you for cleaning me and never again. But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, but I might. Don't want to, but I might. And maybe you string together months without getting angry at your neighbor or whatever it is. But at some point, you're broken again. Nobody in here has ever done that? Because this pastor has pretty consistently for about 15 years. You know what that makes you? An object of mercy. Otherwise, I'm not making excuses for your sin or mine. I'm telling you that if it were any other way, at the end what you get are testimonies that say, the Lord saved me, now look what I've done with it. And you hear them all the time. You watch out. Get away from them because a fall is coming that will pull you down too. The vessel that God works through is broken and contrite. And I want to tell you the holiest people that I know still struggle with sin. In church, we're very good about not talking about these things. And the more that we don't talk about it, the more it seems to run rampant and people are covered in shame. But see, I'm the pastor. So when ten people come in the course of six months and they all struggling to make eye contact and then look and tell me the same thing, and I'm thinking, well, yeah, of course, you're a woman. Or, yeah, of course, you're a man. Yeah, of course you struggle with that. How could you not? Something be wrong with you if you didn't. And then, you know, faith starts to raise a little more. And they're like, well, what do we do? You hide the word in your heart. You fight against it. 
but I still get it wrong sometimes. Yeah, I know. Makes you an object of mercy. But how's that work? Well, you keep going. You don't quit. You don't stop. This seems hypocritical, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem hypocritical to ask God to forgive you for something that you've done many times before? The devil tells you that you don't mean it. Right? Saints, it depends upon God, not upon you. Let me read a little more, see if we can make it clear. Because the horrible thing is I'm going to run out of time, and this is a subject you need to learn about. I need to learn about it. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in His ways. Well, that must be pretty bad for all those that are just saintly now, huh? Because they're no longer being instructed in His ways. But you and I and John, we still need to be instructed. I want to submit to you an idea that if you are struggling, and the key here is struggling, not giving over. If you give yourself over to sin, God will give you to it, so much so that it will come out your nose like the quail in the desert. But if you are struggling against sin, asking for His strength, hiding the Word in your heart, and you still blow it, it's just as big a sin to not believe He forgave you as it was to commit that sin. It's just as big a sin to walk in feeling ashamed to come into His presence as it was to sin in the first place. Because what you're ultimately saying is that you've blown it so bad that God can't do anything with you. That would presume you had something of worth to give to Him in the first place. And you didn't. And neither do I. He didn't choose you because of your great potential. He chose you because of your great need. And that doesn't change when you need Him today or tomorrow. He instructs sinners in His way. And He guides the humble and teaches them what's right. There's so much good stuff there, I don't know what to say. But if I don't move on, turn to Psalm 34. You know what? Even as a pastor, when I start to talk about these things, I think, oh dear God, they're all wondering what sins in Eric's life. That's none of your business. It's between me and God. But if we don't talk about these things, how do you live? How do you find victory and walk in it? In Psalm 34, hear how this starts. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Who's going to hear and rejoice? Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. Why doesn't He say those who walk in perfection are never covered in shame? Because He knows it can't be done. But you know what can be done? Just like Israel being bitten by snakes, 
dying in their sin, looked at a bronze pole, believing God's Word was true, and they were immediately healed. Didn't matter how bad the bite was. Didn't matter how many times they had been bitten. If they simply did what God said, looked to the pole, they were healed. If you will simply look to God, even though you feel like for all the math in the world, for all the justice in the world, you should be condemned, He says you are radiant. Remember the first time, oh Jesus, this is on tape, but the first time that I cursed as a Christian. Now I could tell you all of the circumstances and what I would really be doing is trying to justify why it was necessary to curse. So we're not going to do that. doesn't matter. I cursed. And I was so sure that I had just driven the nails through Jesus' hands. And I had pierced His very feet right in that moment. Now, it didn't occur to me at the time because my heart was soft. Misdirected, but soft. I had a pretty impressive view of myself then. If... I so let Jesus down by blowing it, by saying a word that it was like crucifying Him again. I must have thought that an awful lot depended upon my own righteousness, huh? I've lived long enough now to go, yeah, Lord, it's me again. I'm sorry. And then you feel bad for not feeling guilty enough, don't you? So you're going to feel guilty for a few days and then it'll be okay. Well, isn't that insulting to Jesus? How many days would be enough to pay for your sin? Huh? Maybe we should. I know what we'll do. I got it. We will go to a fee for sin service. I'll leave a bigger offering box back there. And if you really feel penitent, just put more money in the box. (laughs) Saints, the way this works is that we trust Him. And part of trusting Him is not just believing that He saved you from sin in the past, but that He is saving you right now. And that there is no statute of limitations. That means, yes! believe I committed murder back then, but God's forgiven me now. Great. How long ago was it? 20 years and I believe it and I believe it and my whole life's shown it. But then you sin five minutes from now and, oh Jesus, I need to be out of His presence for a while. I've got to punish myself. Let me let my face be drawn for a while. Let me show everybody how sorry I am to sin. Let me just punish myself a little bit so I can add to what He did on the cross. No, we can't say that, can we? But isn't that kind of how it works? So what's the alternative? Oh, I sinned and I don't care. Jesus paid for it all. Might as well use it. He bought it. No, there's a church that does that. That's a license for immorality. What I am talking about is getting real with Him, saying, Jesus, I blew it. There's not an excuse. I don't want to blow it. I'm going to try to do better. Help me. Help me to hate what you hate. Love what you love. And you go to Him as many times as you have to, but when you go to Him, you believe that you've received what you've just asked for and then you... Act like it. One of the most dissatisfying things on earth is to go counsel an employee or discipline a child or anything like that. And right, you got it laid out. You are going to make them understand just how bad it is. Right? And they look you right now and go, I understand and I will try to do better. What do you want to do when they do that? When it says, you want to go back through it again? It's like you didn't understand. Let me torture you a while. You need to understand just how grievous this problem is. God knew what you were when He called you saints. He knows. He knows what's in your heart, and He is changing it. He's changing your heart. In fact, He says, uh, This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him from all his troubles. 
The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. He delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. You know what your job is? It's when you get it wrong, you don't cover in shame. You run to the refuge. If Adam and Eve, the moment they had eaten from that tree and realized, ooh, we're naked, had ran to clothe themselves with God rather than hide and clothe themselves with fig leaves, the story might have gone differently. Saints, in the church we have to learn that shame should not separate us from God. He's already taken care of our shame. The only appropriate place for shame is what we would call the moment of conviction that brings change in your life. But it is never God's will that you spend a day depressed about anything. It's not. It is never God's will that you feel unworthy to exist in the church. That's the devil's will because that's how he picks you off and kills you. He goes on to say in this that the Lord's close to the brokenhearted and that He clothes them with salvation. When man felt ashamed, the first thing they did was realize they were naked. Shame makes you feel vulnerable and worthless. This is why the Bible says we are radiant, we are clothed in salvation, clothed in joy, arrayed in righteousness, all those things. Trying to say all of those vulnerable areas, all of those giant glaring weaknesses, are clothed in Christ. And when we sit there and scratch the scab over and over and over to punish ourselves for a while, we're diminishing Jesus. And we're diminishing the work that He did on the cross. Now the reason this happens is because the devil knows if he tells you this, if he can get you to walk in shame, you can't walk in His name. He knows that. And so actually what happens, at least in my life, is... I can, I can actually, Matt and I talk about this regularly, and so, and Jennifer and I, so do Jennifer and I. I can feel a bombardment spiritually. And I'm being drawn towards things that no person should be drawn toward. And I'm having thoughts that I shouldn't have. And I go, at some times, God willing, every once in a while I realize it, and I go, huh, you're not going to get me, devil. Because what's happening is somebody in the church needs me. And when a few hours later I get a phone call, somebody's on the edge of divorce or something. But if I'm covered in shame, I don't feel worthy to his name in front of them. And that is the goal of the devil. Do you really think that God's dethroned because you said a word you shouldn't say? you think he's so small that your error has lessened him in some way? But when you don't believe that you're righteous, even when faced with evidence that says to be otherwise, you're diminishing his word. That's a tough thought, isn't it? It is. But I just don't want to Diminish Him. I want to take refuge in Him. Turn to Isaiah 61. And I promise I'm going to try to wrap this up soon, but I don't want you to get less than you should. I want your kids to get good night's sleep and all of those things. But I also want you to know the Word. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I do want you to look towards me. If you were honest right now, has there been a day in the last two weeks where you didn't do something that you should do for God because you were ashamed? I bet so. Otherwise, these messages wouldn't come to me. You know how they really get to me? When I feel ashamed to do God's work. I almost always preach about my own weakness. So you think I'm talking about you? I am, but I'm talking about me too. So in Isaiah 61, everybody knows Isaiah 61 uh, starts about the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee. And uh, let's pick up then 
in verse 3. To provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. This is the exchange program Matthew was telling you about. You bring to him ashes. Ashes not worth much, are they? You bring to him despair. You bring to him those things and he gives you something good for them. How can that work only at salvation and not the day after? Did God change? He didn't, did He? Well, we feel like because He cleaned us up once, He never should have to do it again. Well, He shouldn't, but He does. And He knew it when He bought you. Anybody in here got a car that you love, but sometimes it breaks? We're sinful, so we may love it less for a few moments. But if you paid a lot for it and you really love it, you just fix it and keep on loving it. How much did Jesus pay for you? You think He's going to throw you away because you spoke up when you should have shut up? The devil will tell you that he will because it changes the way we view ourselves. The thing that hinders the church the most is not that we don't have a proper view of God, it's that we don't have a proper view of ourselves. We either see ourselves as hopeless sinners who can never do anything righteous or we see ourselves as righteous in a self-righteous way. Living in the middle is a very hard thing to do. Where we are called to be saints and that's what we are because the Bible says it, but occasionally we act like sinners and we hate it. There's a war that rages within us. And as long as you're at war, God credits you with victory. When you're not at war, when you've made peace with it, you're defeated and don't know it. I usually talk to you about the latter rather than the former. But I don't want you to be discouraged. I don't want you to have drawn long faces and feel worn out like you'll never get it right and you just can't live up to the gospel. The gospel's not that hard. What does God require of you, old man? Walk humbly. Love mercy. Act justly. This is what God wants from you. He wants you to love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. This is the most important command. Not do not lie. Not do not kill. Not do not steal. Not do not covet. The most important command is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. I'm not saying the other things are okay. What I'm saying is let's start with what's important and then trust that He is making us holy. Turn with me to Romans 10. I've made fun of this Scripture for years because of its misuse, but tonight I want to show you a good use. In Romans 10, starting in verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. We usually end there. As the Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. doesn't say anyone who never sins. It says anyone who trusts in Him will not be put to shame. Saints, you cannot be ashamed in trusting in Him at the same time. Anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. And let me distinguish for you conviction from shame. Conviction says I'm better than this and I'm capable of more than this. Shame says it's not even worth trying. I can't. I've blown it so bad. 
And maybe you don't go kill yourself, but for a few days you might as well be dead or a few hours or whatever it is. For some reason, we want to punish ourselves by taking a day off and not doing God's work. i tell you what I have resolved to do. Within seconds after realizing I didn't get something right, I'm going to go do something else that I know is right. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let's suppose for a moment that you own my dog, Winston, and he pees on your floor. And rather than showing him love and compassion, you kick him in the face. Okay? Purely hypothetical situation. Let's suppose that this occurs. You could go feel ashamed and hide in your room for a few days. won't help Winston at all. Or you could say, man, I'm better than that. I shouldn't have done that. And then immediately do something that is right. Which do you think would honor God more? You may not feel like doing it. You may feel unworthy. Obviously, Winston's a joke. You understand we're talking about serious things. Yeah, Winston is a joke. Poor thing. He's half a dog tall and a dog and a half long. He can't help it. I got two scriptures for you. Turn with me to Hebrew. At least y'all are laughing. Hebrews 10. I'm scared. This book is encouraging. Oh, by the way, I guess I should tell you, we're doing communion Sunday. You ever had a communion plate pass in front of you and you didn't take it because you were ashamed? I got to find the book of Hebrews. Hold on. Yeah, Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, starting in the ninth verse. Twelfth verse. But when this high priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since, since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are... What does it say? Being made holy. You are being made holy. Another time it says you're being made perfect. I want you to understand that's a process. And one of the ways that you improve anything, in other words, make it holy, is to have its flaws revealed. But how unpleasant is it when it's your flaw? God has to make you holy. Now, you said, but wait a minute. The Bible says that I am the righteousness of God in Christ, not will be, I am. So how do you reconcile the idea that you are now holy and you are being made holy? He credits you with something that you do not yet have because He's promising you that He said it and it will be so. And what are you doing? You're trusting that that's true. See, the truth is you're not even saved yet. You are called saved because if you continue to trust Him, you will be saved. How could you be saved? You've not faced the judgment. You had not had a chance for your body to get glorified. So why did we walk around and say, I was saved and I am saved? Because there was a moment in time when you began trusting Him and it's as good as done if you just keep trusting Him. Because nobody who trusts in Him will ever be put to shame. Do you understand how we speak in faith? But don't get confused. You are not in the reality but we act as if we are because it shows our trust in Him. Being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this, for He says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then He adds, 
Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. That means that the thing that you're dwelling on that is keeping you from God's presence, He's already said He promises He will remember no more if you trust Him. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Do you understand if these have been forgiven, there is no sacrifice for sin? That means that it's sin for you to try to add some level of penance to what God has done. Not repentance, penance. That means it's wrong for you to try to pay in some way for your sin because it's already been forgiven. So what is it, Eric, then when you say, if you get something wrong, say you're sorry and then go get something right. Are you not trying to pay for it? No, I'm trying to make the devil pay for it. If he tricked me into slipping in some area, I'm going to step on his head in another area. And eventually, I'm hoping he'll go pick on somebody else, like a church down the street. The Mormon one down there. All right, turn to Hebrews 12. Actually, I should have read more there, but... You in Hebrews 12? Everybody there? Good, because I'm going to read you something still out of 10. But you stay in 12. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place... How could you have confidence? Because you've been forgiven. By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain that is His body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. I want you to understand that shame keeps you from entering into His presence. And the Word tells you that not only do you have to go into His presence, but you can't do it like my little dog Winston with your tail between your legs and your tongue dragging and wincing. You have to do it confidently because it shows that you trust this depends upon Him and not upon you. This is what it means to be an object of mercy. Now, Hebrews 12 is where you turned. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter. He began it and He is perfecting it. Perfecting it is like being made holy. He is making your trust perfect. If you and I have never been tested, we've never been in a situation where I had the chance to do something wrong to you or you had the chance to do something wrong to me, we have a certain level of trust. But if we're in a situation where we had the chance to wrong each other and didn't, there's yet another level of trust. And here's a third. If you have a relationship with somebody and you have wronged them and they still love you, it's a whole nother level of love, isn't it? Because you know it's undeserved. 
See, our God puts us in situations where we understand that we're objects of mercy. I'm not saying He's made you sin. I'm saying He realizes that you are vulnerable and you are weak. This keeps you from thinking that this depends upon your arm instead of God's. And the right view is, Lord, I would be but a worm except for you. But I'm going to fix my eyes on you and everything you say I can do, even though I realize it's you working in me, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to view myself like your word says I am. And even when I don't feel like it, I'm not going to walk by my feelings. I'm going to walk by my trust in you. Let's be real. You really can't let God down. Not if you continue to trust in Him. All you do is show Him that there's a little more work left to be done and He didn't give up on you. He promised that He began a good work and He will do what? Complete it. But if you give up on you, what are you saying about Him? You began it, God, but apparently I'm too difficult for you to complete it. See, we can't do that, saints. I don't want you to hang your heads. I don't want you to sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate. Act like it. If your daddy is the judge, if the prosecuting attorney has been thrown out of the courtroom, and if your defense attorney happens to be your blood brother, what do you really have to fear? The only thing that you lose in all of that is your trust and confidence in God and the time you spent covered in shame. Let's look to God. Let's let Him make our faces radiant. We'll realize that it depends on Him and not us. And let us not walk around condemned and guilty. It would be great if you didn't sin. I would love that. I don't want any of you to. And I don't want to. And God doesn't want you to. But if you do, it's been paid for and you need to act like it. Don't treat it lightly. But also don't punish yourself and cover yourself in some kind of false sense of shame that it pays for it. That only adds insult to injury. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him, hear this, endured the cross, scorning its... He had to scorn shame so that you wouldn't have to. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Considered Him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. I don't mean lose heart in that you give up in the faith. I mean lose heart in that you give up on the ideals of the faith that say that you are righteous even when faced with evidence to the contrary. I don't know where your struggles are, but I guarantee you if we sat in a room for ten minutes, I could probably name them because you're a human being like every other person. God's been doing this thousands of years and He still picked you. And He picked you for a reason. And it's not because, it's not because you're perfect. You knew that. He requires you to shoot for it, to strain for it, to go to war with the enemy, and then to act like you're winning. Amen? Stand to your feet.